Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. So I'd like to welcome you, Rodger Breckman, the author of the book Humankind, which is this is one of the very, very best books I've ever read, maybe the best book. <laughs> so, so thanks a lot for taking your time to having this conversation with me today. That's so kind of you to say, Braven. Thanks for having me. Among the fact that the book is just well written, what I really, really like is the level of research that you have put into this book. And then that it is, it leaves the reader with a wonderful, optimistic, positive view on the world. But I'd, 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 I'd like to dive into the, the amount of research because it really, really is a lot of research. Did you, did you plan that up front? So now I'm going to just keep on researching writing <laughs> this book. <laughs> I worked on this book for quite a while, I think around six years. Um, and um, the reason I wanted to write it was that I started to notice that in so many different disciplines, anthropology and archaeology and sociology and psychology, um, researchers were moving towards a more optimistic, a more hopeful view of human nature, but they often didn't seem to know it about each other, right? So there was one specific moment when I was interviewing a psychologist. Her name is Marie uh, Lindegaard. She's done extraordinary work on the bystander effect, you know, this effect that supposedly means that uh, whenever there's a local emergency, someone's drowning, someone's attacked in the streets, that we don't do anything, right? We're just apathetic. Uh, we're like a, someone else's responsibility. Psychologists believe that for a long time. Which you're touching in your book too. Yes, yes. And so she'd done some extraordinary research where she showed on uh, the basis of camera footage, right? Because there are cameras in cities everywhere these days. And you could just look at the footage of real incidents. And she uh, built a huge database and proved that actually in 90% of all cases, 90%, uh, people help each other. Um, and she was telling me about her research. And uh, I was telling her afterwards about new trends in evolutionary psychology and this notion that scientists have come up with of survival of the friendliest which literally means that for millennia was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. You know, this friendliness really is our secret superpower. And I was, I was explaining that to her and she said something that I remembered, which was, oh my God, so it's happening there as well in this other field. And then I realized, oh wow, she's such a brilliant researcher, but she doesn't know what's going on in the field next to hers. And then I was like, okay, maybe someone should try and connect the dots and not to be the specialist that knows everything about this, you know, particular subject, but to look at the bigger picture. And that's really what I've attempted to do in this book. 
Yeah, and that, I, I think that's um, that's a line that goes um, that you can follow through the entire book. That it's like you're focusing on the research, and then presenting the immediate results, but then diving one step further down. Say, hey, if if we take a closer look at this, it's actually not what we thought it was. It shows something completely different, and your examples just show that over and over again. Did you know that up front? I mean, all these, all these studies that have been published and have been accepted, mm -hmm. that there is another side to that. Writing this book was really a journey for me as well. So I'll give you one example. Uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment, which is probably the most famous experiment that was ever done in the history of psychology. Um, the standard story goes something like this. Um, in the early 70s, there was a researcher called Philip Zimbardo, he's actually still alive, uh, who came up with the idea to create a fake prison in the basement of Stanford University. He had 24 students, 12 of them he turned into guards, 12 of them were the prisoners. And then supposedly, very quickly after the experiment started, everything got out of hand. You know, the, the guards turned into sadistic monsters. And so the message of the Stanford prison experiment is, uh, there's a beast in each and every one of us, right? So evil is just below the surface. It's an example of what scientists call veneer theory. You know, the notion that our civilization is just a thin layer, just a thin veneer. Now, I must say that I used to believe in this experiment. So I had written about it in earlier books of mine. Um, I thought, you know, that it was sound science. Uh, it, it was in all the textbooks. Uh, and psychology students from around the world, uh, we are being taught the Stanford Prison Experiment. It was only when I was working on this book that I thought, well, let's take another look at the experiment and then, and then let's, let's see if there's any archival material on, on how it really happened. And then what you find is that basically the whole thing is a hoax, <laughs> to, to be blunt about it. So we now know that the guards were specifically instructed to behave as monstrous and sadistic as possible. And we also know that many of the guards didn't want to do it. But then Simbardo, the researcher, told them, um, look, you got to do this because we need these results so that we can go to the press and say, prisons are horrible environments. We need to reform the whole thing. So it's an extraordinary example of what you could call fake science. But still, somehow, this has ended up as one of the most famous, influential experiments in the history of psychology. Um, so yeah, that's something that is a pattern that you, that you see in many, many cases. Fake science, that's a new term. When, it's, it's very yeah. easy for the time being to get the impression that the world is going mad and is out of control, which is why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Because when you read the book, um, mm -hmm. you're left with another way more positive feeling about the world. But it is easy to get that impression from the media right now. Is the world going mad? Well, I certainly agree with you that it is easy to get that impression. And look, I don't think there's nothing to worry about. Uh, in many ways, you could argue that this century is one of the most dangerous centuries in the history of human existence. And I'm not just talking about the risk of climate change here, but I mean, we've also recently, once again, been reminded of the risk of nuclear war. Um, 
or think about the risk of synthetic biology and viruses that could develop in the lab and I mean, could go on for quite a while, um, the risk of artificial intelligence. Um, but then at the same time, we have also made extraordinary progress. It is very easy to forget just how bad the past was, Right. So if we just look at poverty, for example, over 90% of the world population lived in extreme poverty up until the year 1800. I've just been uh, researching um, the history of slavery and abolitionism, you know, the fight against the slave trade. And again, it's pretty astounding to realize that up until the year 1800, around three quarters of the world population was in some kind of... Uh, forced labor, right? They, they, they were some kinds of slaves, you know, sometimes literally slaves, sometimes serves. Um, if you just look at some basic metrics, whether it's uh, life expectancy or poverty, we've made tremendous progress. Extreme poverty has halved since the 1980s. Um, it could have been something on the front page every day, like Every single day, we pulled out, uh, what is it, more than 200,000 people out of extreme poverty. It's pretty wonderful news, if, if you put it like that. Um, so as a historian, I always think it's important to put things in perspective, that, that you really know where you come from, because then you can see that, yes, things are still really bad, but they're getting better. <laughs> <laughs> in many respects. And that is real progress that we should cherish. I couldn't agree more. You have some strong evidence in the book about the fact that fundamentally, we don't want to kill each other. We don't want to fight. Mm -hmm. Could you give a couple of examples of that? Sure. Um, if you watch a Hollywood movie or, I mean, any series on Netflix or HBO or whatever, you might get the impression that humans are killer apes, that we are wired to kill, that it's supposedly very easy for us to turn violent. But more than a century of historical and psychological research pretty much tells us the opposite, that actually we humans find it pretty difficult to engage in violence. I mean, obviously we are capable of it, but there we also have a natural revulsion against it. One of the first people who discovered this was an American historian and army man called S.L.A. Marshall, who estimated during the Second World War when he was traveling uh, the front and interviewing a lot of soldiers, he estimated that only around 15 to 25% of soldiers actually fired their guns. Now, there's a lot of discussion around this stati these statistics, um, but later research has pretty much backed it up, actually. There's, there's one wonderful book written by Randall Collins, a sociologist called Violence, in which he per persuasively argues that indeed humans are not hardwired to be violent. We are hardwired to be social, to work together. That is actually the secret superpower of our species. You know, it has enabled us to conquer the globe. If you ask the question, why have we conquered the globe? Why not the Neanderthals? Why not the bonobos? Well, this, this friendliness, this, this, this ability to connect with one another is really essential. That doesn't mean we can't be violent, but there are, there are certain circumstances that, that are necessary, um, for us to to overcome our natural revulsion against it. So, for example, distance plays an incredibly important role. If you study the history of warfare, what you see is that, uh, well, for example, look at the, the Battle of Waterloo or the Battle of the Somme uh, in the First World War. The vast majority of the casualty, 
casualties came from artillery, right? Because it's much easier, psychologically speaking, to push a button and kill a lot of people far away than to look someone in the eye and pull the trigger. Now, it is also possible to condition people or to brainwash them, as many modern armies now do, uh, to sort of teach them how to kill other people. Uh, but that, that is not without its dangers. So when the American army started to do this, especially during the war in Vietnam, uh, many soldiers paid a high price. So we know, again, from extensive statistical research, that the soldiers who kill enemy combatants in battle, uh, especially if they do it up close, um, they um, often develop PTSD. You know, they become traumatized. Which suggests to me that even though we are capable of all kinds of horrific behavior, I mean, in some ways you could argue that we're one of the cruelest species in the animal, animal kingdom, uh, but it's not exactly what we're evolved to do, right? If we, if we eat food, we enjoy that. If we have sex, well, we usually enjoy that as well because it's good for the species, right? Um, but then often when we engage in terrible acts of violence, we kill something inside ourselves as well. Right? which is, I think says something deep about our species. Yeah, so we're social beings and we don't really want to do anything that is bad for the species. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you could argue it in that way. O on the other hand, I mean, you have to acknowledge, obviously, that so many of the terrible things we do as a species, and <laughs> there are obviously quite a few, whether it's warfare or ethnic cleansing or genocide, I don't want to deny any of that. Um, we often do it in the name of the good. Right? We often do it while we think we're actually standing on the right side of history. I mean, think about the Russians today or the average Russian soldier or even Vladimir Putin. Um, he's probably not like the Joker, right? In the Batman series, the Batman movies. Like the Joker just enjoys violence for violence's sake. He's just a sadist. And, you know, that's just it. He just wants to watch the world burn. And I'm not saying these kind of people don't exist, but what I am saying is that they're very, very rare and that most evil is is perpetrated by, by people who actually believe they're standing on the right side of history, which is, I mean, that's not a comfortable fact, right? That, that's very disturbing. Yes. But why, if we fundamentally do not want to kill each other, why do we do so? Why do we follow our leaders? Are leaders evil by nature? Well, there are many, many... Reasons, of course. Um, one mechanism that I focus on in the book is the behavior of, um, well, just average drafted soldiers uh, in wartime. So if we go back to the Second World War, there was this moment in 1944 and 1945 when the Allies faced a question. They thought, why are these Germans still fighting? I mean, it's pretty clear they're going to lose the war. The Russians are coming in the east. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, especially after D-Day, it was pretty clear that it was lost for the Germans. But still, they were fighting more ferociously than ever, right? And the German army was probably the best army in the world, maybe maybe in history. If you just look at the amount of casualties they caused, they were on average 50% more effective than Allied soldiers. So psychologists couldn't understand it. What was going on here? Were these, these soldiers completely brainwashed? You know, were they like ideological maniacs? Were they all Nazis to the core? What they then started to do is uh, they started interviewing prisoners of war and, and asked them, you know, <laughs> what's going on here? And then again and again, they heard the same answer. It's like, 
we're not fighting because of you know ideological hatred or anything like that. That does play a role, <clears throat> but not the main role. Um, no, it was mainly out of loyalty to comrades, loyalty to friends. And actually the German army command knew this, that these German soldiers didn't want to let their friends down. And so they, they really tried to keep the bands of brothers <laughs> together uh, so they, they could fight as effectively as possible. Um, now, again, this is pretty disturbing, right? That we're, we can do these terrible things in the name of loyalty, in the name of friendship. Um, but that, that is a fact about our species. And there is this, um, you, you have another example, which I found very strong. That was Christmas Eve mm -hmm. in 1914. Well, this is an example of what can happen, even during wartime, when the distance disappears. So as I mentioned, distance is really essential um, in the establishment of, of hatred. Um, but then what happens in the trenches is that these soldiers are very close to one another, right? Sometimes it's just like 50 or 100 meters between them. And at Christmas 1914, they could hear each other singing Christmas carols. And so they started singing for one another. And an extraordinary phenomenon happened, which was described by some historians as the outbreak of peace. So during wartime, peace was breaking out on, on the front. And the generals and, you know, the army command was very frustrated by it. You know, they really tried to keep it in check and say, no, 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 you can't, you can't do this. You can't, you know, have a good time with, with the enemy. But they even started meeting each other and started drinking wine with one another. You know, there are, there are extraordinary descriptions of fraternization between German and British soldiers. Um, and thousands and thousands of soldiers participated um, if it were up to sort of the average soldiers, the First World War would have ended, you know, that Christmas. But obviously it wasn't up to them. So what then the army command decided to do is to start bombarding, you know, with artillery, which is, again, a different psychological mechanism at the enemy lines. And then, um, uh, you know, it was all over. But, you know, in one of the main books about this, this extraordinary episode, uh, a historian really describes this phenomenon of peace as the iceberg, right? So we often look at war as the standard condition in which humans are, right? And that peace is the exception. And historians often talk about it that way, like well, there's a war, war, war. And when there's not a war, we call it the interbellum. But maybe we should turn that around and actually see peace as the iceberg that is trying to come up every single time, right? And you need to put in a lot of effort to push the iceberg down because if you just let things go on, then people start socializing again and are like, what are we doing here in the trenches? Yeah. Uh, why not have a good time? To I know people might say it's naive, but you need to dream big. Uh, and I'm hoping so much that we could get this message out to some of the parts fighting right now, that it is perfectly mm -hmm. okay to lay down weapons. In fact, that is the natural thing to do. And I think that story about 1914 Christmas Eve, that is, a, that is an astonishing example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just reminds us again that war, is, war it really is the exception in human yes. history. Yes. Um, it's actually a quite recent phenomenon as well. So from archaeological research, we know that it really uh, starts 
um, the moment we settled down and we started living in villages and cities and when we invent agriculture. But before that, when we were, were nomadic and gatherers, warfare was pretty much non-existent. Um, and we've been nomadic and gatherers for the biggest part of our history, right? For around 300,000 years. Um, but even in this so-called civilized period of our history, you know, the last 10,000 years, even then war is, is the exception, right? Throughout most periods in human history, um, people live in peace because that's what they really, really prefer. Um, and uh, yes, that doesn't mean we should be naive about anything or about anyone, but I think it's actually a realistic uh, view on our species and on our history uh, to, to, to realize that war is the exception, not the rule. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful way to conclude this conversation. Thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Preben. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.